I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line. Joining me today are Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, and Lynn Stewart, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre, who are here to regale you with a curious bit of Renfrew County history. For those of you who listened to one of our podcasts at this time last year, you know we traveled to Pembroke, where we performed a show for a live audience at the Pembroke Public Library. The library is a curious piece of Renfrew County architecture that many believe, quite rightly, that Frank Lloyd Wright, the famous American architect, had a hand in designing. There, we presented a show about another famous visitor to Pembroke, but long before there even was a Pembroke. His name is Francis Codd, and he was one of the first inhabitants of Moffatville, a shanty town on the banks of the Ottawa River that was the precursor to Pembroke. And among Francis Codd's many claims to Pembroke fame is the fact that he built and launched from the shores of Moffatville the very first sailboat to ever cruise the shores of Alumet Island. Francis Codd, in many ways, was no ordinary man who just happened to pass through Pembroke. Indeed, he was a British doctor who, for some strange reason, set up his medical practice in Moffatville on one very cold day in late February in 1847. Better still, at least for us, when he was not working, sailing, or exploring the frontier, he began writing home to his parents in Norwich, about 200 kilometers northeast of London. In those letters, Dr. Francis Codd waxes eloquent about all that he felt and saw of the places and people that would one day become Renfrew County. He also told us of his brothers, Henry, George, and Charles, and we heard about his father, whom he sometimes referred to as Pater, and we heard about Pater's repeated attempts to give up his living as a country parson, sell his parsonage, colloquially known as Clay, and take his wife and remaining family to Canada to join his son, if not some other far-flung British colony such as New Zealand or Australia. But we heard mostly of the people in Renfrew County that he dealt with. Some rowdy shantymen, gentle aboriginals, mothers who tried to marry off their daughters to him, and poignant frontier lives that came to a bad end. We also found out that after two years of a medical practice where he seemingly spent as much time trying to get paid for his good works as he did performing them, he finally decided to pack up and return to England. Still, Canada was definitely in his blood, and so too was Renfrew County. Indeed, in the late spring of 1849, after a short stay in Norwich at Clay that had still not sold, Dr. Codd gladly headed back to Renfrew County. We pick up his story in his own words as his ship is about to leave England one last time. April 22, 1849. The bark, portly, off Margate. My dear father and mother, the pilot will not leave us until sometime tomorrow, but I write tonight for fear I should be seasick tomorrow. Charles has, of course, told you that he came down to Gravesend with me. I find the ship, captain and passengers, quite as agreeable as I had hoped for. We are at anchor now for the night, and the steam tug will tow us as far as deal. The passengers, beside myself, are Captain Peebles, his wife, her sister, a Miss Mackey, and three children, and a young man named Levy going out for the fourth time as clerk to some timber merchant of the same name in Quebec. In the stowage are two English families and two German. The latter are now singing away like nightingales. A ship is not the place for news, especially the first day, but I will send you a long yarn as soon as we arrive at Quebec. We shall certainly not suffer much cold this voyage, 
The thermometer is now in the cabin, standing at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. With love to all of you, I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. December 9th, 1849. My dear father and mother, I received your letter dated November 8th last Monday, and a famous long yarn it is. You're certainly a capital correspondent. I'm going on much the same and shall not leave Renfrew till next spring at any rate, and not then if I'm paid pretty well this winter. I rather wish I had gone farther west, for the farmers can always get cash there for their wheat, but here the markets are very uncertain because everybody depends on the lumber trade. The falls and rapids in this part of the country are very pretty to look at, certainly, but they make the carriage of produce to Montreal from this place more expensive than from the farthest settlements on Lake Huron. However, I must say that I like Renfrew because the country is full of game and I like the people, especially the two Miss McAndrews. I often go out after the deer and have seen several but never have been able to get a shot at them. I console myself, however, with the reflection that I am as fortunate as any other man about the place. To hunt deer successfully requires great knowledge of their habits and of the country and Indian patience and perseverance. I send you another sketch of the village, I live, you see, nearly in the middle, and the view is taken from each end of our house. I think Mr. Gunn and all Sally's well-wishers ought to be glad that she has got a husband, as well as a young one. I wish you could get something more than nibbles for those livings. The affair seems interminable. Have you really any thoughts of coming out to Canada with the Parkinsons or not? The American annexation scheme is certainly disapproved of by at least four-fifths of the people of Canada, but I think, nevertheless, that sooner or later it will end in a rebellion. They're now trying to gain their ends in the same way the Anti-Corn Law League tried so successfully. I prefer living in Canada under present circumstances to living as an assistant in England, that is, if I prosper here. But what I do regret is that I ever left England at all. I regret it both in a moral and pecuniary point of view. It would be of little use to try to get an assistant's berth in Canada if I wanted one, for I dare say there are not 20 in the whole province, and as to a vacancy in a public medical establishment, it would take as much money as here as it does in England. I've given up all idea of the church. I feel I'm totally unsuited for it. I'm very glad to hear that Girdlestone is recovering his health, but don't ask him to try to do anything for me at Toronto. My dear friends, the Raftsmen, they kicked up a dreadful bobbery about their comrade's bones. They hunted the man who showed me where he was buried in the woods and damaged his property, and they vowed vengeance against me next spring or before if they could catch me. I'm told that they will soon forget it. I've met with several raftsmen since who were quite civil and as polite as usual. However, I find my revolver a very agreeable and necessary companion. They know that I carry it about me, and I'm obliged to go in their way that I will use it rather than be half or wholly killed by them. We've had a fine open fall this year. The summer lasted off and on for six weeks. There was no snow till November 28th, but since then the cold has been pretty severe. There was no good sleighing, though, till today. I had a long journey to Mud Lake, up the Madawaska River last week. I had to start on horseback about midnight on Monday, Thermometer was 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And when we stopped for breakfast at 4 a.m., I felt about as cold as anyone could feel. At 6 a.m., we started again and didn't stop till 11 a.m. when we arrived at the High Falls. 
The rest of the journey, nine miles, we went in a canoe and often had some difficulty in breaking through the ice. We dined in the woods near the chain rapids, off some port and bread, which the shanty man who was with me had had in his pocket for two days. I assure you, I never enjoyed a dinner more in my life. I like a trip of this kind now and then. The distance was nothing, only 33 miles, but the roads were awful. The mud holes were frozen so that they would not quite bear a horse and would often take 10 minutes to go 50 or 60 yards in the dark. In good sleighing, the same journey might easily be done in seven hours. I mean to take a trip up to Pembroke as soon as the ice is perfectly safe, and I expect I will get enough then to pay for the trip at any rate. Mr. Harper, the surveyor here, has been telling me some funny stories about uncivilized Scotchmen. He was in a tavern at Pakenham one day where one of these animals was dining. He had some soup, and he took the large soup ladle for a spoon to feed himself with. He found great difficulty in getting the soup into his mouth with it when full, as he had to hold the handle considerable above his head. But he thought it was the fashion, I suppose, and tried to manage it as elegantly as he could, while Mr. Harper and the landlady were in fits of laughter behind his back. At last, his patience was getting exhausted, and he said, "Eh, hey, man, but this is an awful spoon. Another story is about an old Scotch woman who keeps a tavern near the high falls of the Madawaska. Mr. Harper was dining there, and the old woman, by way of being sociable, for he was a great favorite, sat down to carve for him. She had a large piece of beef and a very blunt knife, and could not find the fork. So she took hold of one end of the beef with one hand, and held the other end with her teeth, and then sawed away at it with the knife, and was talking all the time. He, of course, was nearly killed with laughing, but she thought he was laughing at the story she was telling him. There's been what they call a division court for small debts established at Renfrew. This makes it the principal village for three or four townships. Many people think that the Bathurst district will soon be divided into two, and if so, Renfrew will become the district town. Renfrew in ten years' time would probably be as large as Durham. I sent Pater a Canada Punch last mail and hope he received it. I think it's very good, especially the frontispiece where you see Punch and his dog with snowshoes and a blanket coat on. I was 26 years old yesterday as, I dare say, you remembered. Where shall I be next birthday? Either here at home? Here I hope, although of course I should like to see you all. Tell Charles I shall write to him soon. Would love to you all. I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. December 10th, 1849. My dear mother, will you forward the enclosed letter to Charles? I wrote to you last week and therefore have nothing particular to say now. We have had almost continual snow lately, though it has not been extraordinarily cold. Last Sunday, eight inches of snow fell in about 12 hours. Next time you see Mr. Parkerson, you may tell him that I begin to think that 100 pounds in England requires 200 out here as far as comfort is concerned. I think if he leaves England, he will regret it in less than a year. Ditto, I say to you, if you can live in England, do so. If not, a whole family together may be very contented in Canada or anywhere, I dare say, but it is an experiment I don't wish to see tried. Tell me next time you write whether Hudson took offence at our putting him off the day before I left Leatheringset. 
I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. January 27th, 1850. Renfrew, Horton, Canada. My dear father and mother, my last letter to you was dated December 12th, and I received one from you dated the same day. I wish you many happy returns of your birthday and a happy new year to all of you. I was, as you may suppose, very glad to hear of Mr. Frost's liberality. About that bond, he might no doubt have made it a very unpleasant manner if he had been so inclined. Christmas Day seemed very dull to me this year. The thermometer stood all day at about 16 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, with a northwest gale blowing. Everyone who could kept within doors. I spent the day all alone. I got home from a very long journey up the Madawaska the night before, just in time to escape the extreme cold. New Year's Day was not so bad. I dined with my friend McIntyre and spent the evening at the McAndrews. I would recommend you to give Donnie, uh, for the pushes you speak of, four grains of carbonate of soda with two of rhubarb, night and morning for some weeks altogether, besides whatever may be necessary to keep the back door open. I am, I think, doing pretty well here, considering all things, and should be sorry to leave the place yet at any rate. I think I may be very well off here a few years hence, and may possibly get rich, but at present it is a great struggle. I have at present plenty to do, all the necessities of life, owe nothing, and have fifty pounds in hand, so I must not complain. I have a great mind to commence housekeeping in the spring. It would swallow up all my cash at first, but it would be the cheapest way of living, as well as the most comfortable, if I could only keep afloat for the first year. Plant says he will build a house of any size or kind I like, and let it to me by the year, or sell it when I like, and he will give me a year's credit for house rent, horse, and anything. I buy from him. He is rich and can well afford to wait for his money, and says he is sure that I should be able to live at much less than my present expense. I shall see about it in April, and at all events, I will not attempt it unless I am quite sure of being able to pay my way. After six months' experience, I find that my expenses are considerably more than I anticipated. At the highest, they will be, including everything, about £60 a year. Out of the £30 due to me, I think I am perfectly sure of £20, for it is all due to me from people who can pay if they like, and if they won't pay by any other means, there is a court held here for small debts several times a year, uh, but I shall probably have to wait for it some months. I went down to Pakenham Village the week before last. It is about 26 miles from Renfrew and is a very pretty place. The society, too, is good. There are two doctors, four clergymen, a lawyer, several storekeepers, and lots of civilized girls. Mr. McIntyre gave me some introductions, but I went there to get some vaccine lymph and was pressed for time, so I made acquaintance only with Dr. McGill and Mrs. McFarlane, who keeps a good hotel there, the very best one this side of Montreal. She has three very nice girls, and I enjoyed my visit very much and was quite sorry that I could not stay more than one evening. It is generally thought that Renfrew will outstrip Pakenham in the course of a few years, because it will most likely become the county town when the counties of Renfrew and Lanark are separated, which desirable event is expected to take place in three or four years. Perth, which is at present the county town for the united counties of Lanark and Renfrew, is a place as large as Durham. I believe that Dr. Carswell, my predecessor here, thinks of returning. If so, and if he has given up drinking, I doubt he will cut me out, 
for he practiced in this township nine years and was considered very clever. I am just called out for a very long journey, so I remain Francis Codd. October 16th, 1850. My dear father and mother, I received your letter dated September 19th last Wednesday and sent one to you the day before. Henry seems to have much the same notions of emigrating as I had when his age, and I hope he will profit by my experience. As to farming in Canada, it's quite out of the question under his circumstances. I could satisfy him of that in one day if he were here, I'm sure. It does very well for a man who has a family and who is willing to head a stationary, moneyless life and be considered as an equal by all his clod-hopping neighbors and laborers. I mean, where a man commences with no more money than enough to buy a farm and stock it. If a man has a professional income or income from another source, he may live on a farm as a gentleman, or rather as gentlemen do in the new settlements of Canada, and will be looked up to accordingly. Henry could not practice as a surveyor here without several years more study. I would therefore strongly recommend him to learn some profession while he has the chance, and if he comes to Canada, surveying is as good as any profession he could learn, and must continue so while there is any wild land to be settled, namely for hundreds of years to come. Storekeeping is very profitable when rightly managed, but I fancy that Henry would like surveying better. I have been making inquiries on the subject and find that I was wrong in saying in a former letter that an English surveyor would be admitted to examination for a license after studying six months more in Canada. This rule applies only to Lower Canada surveyors who want to practice in Upper Canada and vice versa. If Henry wishes to be a surveyor in Canada, he must study in Canada. His English indentures would not be of any use to him at all. The Surveyor General's office is part of the Crown Land Department in Canada, and all persons wishing to practice as surveyors in Canada are required to serve a three-year apprenticeship with a licensed provincial surveyor and then pass an examination before a board appointed for that purpose. Then, if found competent, they are licensed by the governor and are employed sometimes by the farmers to determine their boundaries, find the old posts, blairs, etc., and sometimes they are sent by government to explore the unsettled parts of the country, scale rivers, or lay out new townships. Mr. Harper says that the premium required for apprenticeship to a surveyor varies from nothing to 50-pound currency. The less premium, the more work expected, and vice versa, board and lodging included. I should, of course, be very glad to see Henry in Canada, but let him remember that I only give him the best information I can on the subject, and I do not recommend him to leave England, nor do I promise that I will remain here, although I have no thought of leaving at present. Let Henry remember, too, that it is much easier to go out and return from Canada than from Australia if he did not like the country or was unsuccessful. I have not a particle of news to tell since I last wrote, except that Miss McAndrew is getting better. So with love to all, I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. December 2nd, 1850. Renfrew, Horton, Canada. My dear father and mother, I received a letter from you last week dated October 31st and sent one to you on the 15th of October. The most important news I have for you this time is that on the day after I sent my last letter to you, I managed to get another shot at a deer and killed him dead on the spot. I consider myself a great hunter now and am the envy of the other sporting white men in the village. 
Don't laugh. Joking apart, though. I was very much pleased when I found the deer dead just where I shot at him. Next day, I got him home, put on my old dissecting uniform, and butchered him. I gave Miss McAndrew a haunch, of course. I have been out shooting only twice since and each time got a partridge or two. The Canadian partridge is very good eating. The flesh is white and it is a much larger bird than the English partridge. Last Sunday, I had the honour, little else, of being called to see a sick man in Pembroke. I had a dreadful journey through half-frozen mud for 46 miles and was travelling all night. Two days afterwards, when I came back, I got soaked with cold rain and then it froze my outside clothes quite stiff and my cap was covered with icicles. The man who came for me had a fresh horse halfway, but my pony went the whole distance without appearing so fatigued as either of the other horses. He is the best little fellow, I believe, in three townships and I could sell him tomorrow for 24 pounds if I were inclined. We have had about two inches of snow on the ground for a week or ten days and are anxiously expecting more tonight so as to begin sleighing, for riding on horseback is a great hardship at this time of year in Canada. Among my other expenses is that of a cutter, which I shall have finished in a day or two. It will cost seven or eight pounds, but I bought harness and buffalo robes last winter, otherwise the whole turnout would be thirteen pounds. It appears to me, once I am fully equipped, it will cost me very little to live here. My house is finished at last, and I go into it next week. I light the stoves every day and think it will soon be perfectly dry. My housekeeper is an old servant of plants whose virtues and vices I am well acquainted with. She is clean and honest, but apt to get drunk occasionally. I am to pay her 12 shillings 6 pence per month. It would be useless to expect to get a really good servant in this part of the country or perhaps in any other part of it. Remember that. I am indeed surprised and glad to hear that clay is almost sold. And of course, I should like you to come to Canada if you come willingly. Do not, however, let Charles or George think of getting a living by farming in Canada. They do not know what slavish work it is and I am sure they would not put up with it. At all events, I know I would not and could not, but I think if they were here, they might find something profitable to do. For instance, a carding mill costs about 300 pounds, a small factory for manufacturing the common cloth used by the farmers and made from their own sheep's wool would not, I think, cost more than a few hundred pounds. The manufacture of potash is generally a good speculation and requires much less capital. I shall be anxious to hear how you decide about emigration, but do not wish to bias you. All I can say positively is that I would not leave Renfrew while I continue to do well in it. I am getting very sleepy and will finish my letter tomorrow. December 3rd. Lots of snow and sleighing today. If Henry were to come out here, I think he could not do better than to go on with surveying. I am glad that he refused Hale's offer. If Hale's is anything like what he was at school, he would be a most tyrannical and disagreeable master. 
I think if you were really determined to emigrate and were doubtful as to which colony to go to, it might be advisable for Pater to take a look at Canada next spring before finally deciding. It need not cost more than six pounds sterling if managed with the greatest possible economy and by taking a second cabin passage, which even in the Sarah Sands, not a first-class steamer, I found much more comfortable than the first cabin of a trading vessel like the Portly. The expense would be thus. Second cabin passage per mail steamer to Boston or New York, 15 pounds. Blankets, etc. for the voyage, at the utmost, 5 pounds. Travelling expenses from Boston or New York to Montreal, including one day's stay in first-class hotel, 5 pounds. If you travelled up to me through the country and stayed a week or two, you might see quite enough of Canadian country life to judge whether you would be content with it, and certainly much more than by running at the rate of 15 or 16 miles an hour up and down the main rivers to visit the cities like Parkerson. The expense need not be at all more than £10 from Montreal to Liverpool, again £20. All total, £55. Time required between two and three months. However, as I have said before, I think that if you can live in England on a certain income, you had better not run the risk of emigrating and repenting of it when too late. As to Charles and George, their case is quite different. They are young, and a little hardship would not hurt them. At any rate, they would have at least as much prospect of prosperity here as they have in England. As to myself, I am just now getting deeper into debt by a pound to two every day. But this will come to an end in a few days, and my practice still continues to increase. But I am receiving very little just now, although I have more than 90 pounds due to me. I may get paid nearly all this within a few months, in which case I should not wish any assistance from you. But as matters stand at present, I should certainly find a great deal less than fifty pounds of great service to me. But perhaps you may be wanting the money even more than I am, so remember that if you don't send any, I shall not be disappointed, and will still let you know if I find it impossible to get along without assistance. If I were once clear of debt, I should be doing very well here. That is to say, if my practice continued as during the first year, I should be earning at least double what my necessary expenses would be. Unfortunately, all is not gold that glisters in Canada. I should be quite certain of receiving half what I earn. My rival, Dr. Carswell, is a mean old fellow. He loses no opportunity of trying to destroy my professional character, and there are always some horrible stories about concerning me, but I don't care much about them now, for I find my practice steadily increases in spite of them. So you may imagine that I am not considered the worst doctor in Canada by everyone. Last November, my practice amounted to £6.10, shillings, and this November to £10.05. Shillings. Last November, I received about £1.15 or less, and this November, £2. With love to all, I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. P.S. I send you a paper containing a most ridiculous letter to Mr. Barnum, Jenny Lynn's driver at New York. 
It is a hoax, of course, which I had nothing to do with, but is rather laughable. Palmerston, Burnstown, etc., are villages in embryo of about five houses, each on the Madawaska and Boneshire. The nobility living higher up the river are, of course, shantymen, and their usual costume is something as follows. Large boots with trousers tucked into them just below the knee, coarse blue woolen trousers, a red sash nearly as big as a blanket, a red flannel shirt or two, no coat or waistcoat even in winter, and a blue or red cap made in the shape of a man's nightcap with a long tassel. The said gentlemen mostly pride themselves on being able and willing to drink any amount of whiskey that comes in their way and could split a hair with a four-foot axe. March 9th, 1851. Renfrew, Canada West. My dear father and mother, I received a letter from you last mail and also one on the 27th of January. I have not written to you for nine weeks, I believe, and I am very sorry for it. I expect you think that something has happened to me. The fact of the matter is that I did intentionally put off writing longer than usual, but the last two mails I have missed accidentally, having put off writing till the day before mail day, and then I happened to have had a journey or something that prevented me from writing. I was, of course, very sorry to hear that Clay was as far from being sold as ever. More on your accounts, I think I may say, than on my own, although I can hardly see when I may get out of debt if I have to depend entirely on my own resources. Still, my income is certainly increasing, and my expenses are now again reduced to something less than my income, and my creditors, Plant and McIntyre, don't seem the least inclined to hurry me. I have also provisions enough on hand to last me. My servant and horse, Billy, till next winter. My linen, too, which you mention, is to all appearances as good as when I left England, so pray don't fret yourselves about sending me money until you can conveniently do so. If I should be very much pressed, I will not fail to let you know. I received last year 49 pounds odd, that is from January 1st, 1850 to January 1st, 1851, and from August 1st, 1849 to August 1st, 1850, I received 42 pounds. My debts are now 40 pounds to Plant, between 20 pounds and 30 pounds to McIntyre, about 10 pounds to other people, besides Charles and George. I have about 60 pounds due to me. I do not regret having commenced housekeeping, for although I owe so much, I have the value of the money in my possession, namely the house, land, horse, cutter, etc., etc., and when one pays for board and lodging, the money is totally gone and there is nothing to show for it. By the by, my horse is the best 14 pounds worth I ever got. I have not met with his equal yet and do not expect it for some time to come. He trotted yesterday on thin ice a distance which is reckoned between four and five miles in 14 minutes. I will now look over your two letters and comment on them. My housekeeper has only been drunk twice, and as she has been perfectly sober for the last six or seven weeks, I think she will do for the future. If not, I will certainly get rid of her, even if I cannot get another and am obliged to go back to Plants for a time, for there is nothing I hate the sight of so much as a drunken person. As to Pater's question of what I think he could do better than to emigrate, I say that if your income, after all debts are paid, would be too small to live on in England, you cannot do better than to emigrate without a month's delay and without waiting for anything else to turn up in England. For we must take things as they are, not as they might be. 
If you did not feel happy in Canada or wherever you went to, in that case, you would at least have the consolation of knowing that your prospects were worse in England. For if you keep slipping into debt every year, no matter how little it might be, the time must come when your troubles will far exceed anything you have suffered hitherto or could meet with in Canada while you possessed a farm, even in the most uncivilized part of it. But on the other hand, if when the livings are sold and debts paid, you find that with great economy and without calculating on any other income than what you are sure of, you can make ends meet, the most I would recommend as to immigration would be that you, Pater, should come out to see for yourself what Canada really is, for you know people's tastes and distastes are so different. Were I in your situation, however, I should not hesitate about emigration two minutes. If clay cannot be sold soon, I think it is a pity that you should put yourself to such continual anxiety to apparently no useful purpose, for I suppose you can live as you are without getting further into debt. As to the moral right or wrong of selling clay and leth, your arguments are perfectly satisfactory, I think. The church, which allows livings to be bought, cannot reasonably forbid the sale of them. Thank you for the times. The papal aggression debates amused me very much. Lord John seems to have displeased all parties and pleased none, as was expected. I don't think his bill will do much to keep the Catholic religion from gaining ground in England. Tell Charles I shall write to him next mail. Your offer of cooking recipes I thank you for, but it would not be of any use for my handmaid can't read, and I don't care enough about it to look after her myself. The McAndrews have a cousin in California who is doing very well, but gives the same account of the state of society as Mr. Thornton. He talks of leaving us soon. About six weeks ago, I came pretty near being frozen, I think. I had to travel 28 miles up the Madawaska on one of the coldest nights ever remembered in Canada. It blew a gale of wind from the northwest with a thermometer at 34 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. I started at 11 p.m. and the snow drifted so that I could not get along much faster than three or four miles an hour on average. Once I got into such a drift that I could neither get ahead or turn around. My hands and feet got so cold by getting out to unharness the horse that I had to leave him and go to a shanty which was near at hand. Fortunately, I roused the people and got the man to come help me. We had to get the cutter into the middle of a field before I could get around the drift. The snow in midwinter in this part of Canada is generally between three and four feet deep on the level, so you may fancy how awkward it is to get about when one is off the hard beaten road. I had a part of my nose about the size of the sixpence so badly frozen that the skin came off in a day and made a very ugly ulcer, but it is quite well now. The messenger who came for me did not return that night, and I heard of no one but myself who was out all at night for that greater part of it. Everyone said it was a wonder I escaped with my life, considering the difficulty of getting along and the intense cold. Last week, the Bishop of Bytown and his chaplain, a Mr. Malloy, were here for two days. The bishop is a native of old France and is a very gentlemanly, nice man. He has just returned from Rome and England and was very entertaining. When they went away, I went with them and our priest, Mr. McNulty, as far as Sand Point, 16 miles further down the Ottawa. There, a Mr. MacDonald, a civilized lumberman, invited me to dine with him and stop all night at his house, which I did. I enjoyed the visit very much. This MacDonnell is a Scotch Catholic and lives much the same as a man would in England, worth 400 or 500 pounds a year. In fact, he is a very great man in this part of Canada. Tell Fred that if he wishes to distinguish himself, I can give him an opportunity. 
My friend, Mr. McIntyre, thinks of building a neat cottage out of the village and in a very pretty spot next summer. If Fred would like to make a design for such a cottage, I can give it to Mr. McIntyre. If it pleases him, he would, of course, make use of it. I don't suppose Mr. McIntyre would offer any money for it, for architects are seldom thought necessary out of cities in Canada, but it would be good practice for Fred if he has time to do it. The house, I suppose, would contain, besides kitchen, etc., a parlour, drawing room, and three or four bedrooms. It is usual to have the kitchen somewhat separate from the rest of the house, like a wing at the back, on account of the heat in summer. There must be a veranda, and it must be a tasty affair, and such a one as would cost in England about 500 or 600 pounds. It must be built, say, of stone, be a story and a half high, have two servants' bedrooms above and two on the ground floor. My love to all, and I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. May 27th, 1851. My dear father and mother, my last letter to you was dated about the 21st of April, and the last I received from you was dated April 10th. I have now your last letter before me, and will answer it as I go on. My housekeeper has given up grog in earnest, I begin to hope, for she has been quite sober for several months, and as she is honest, tidy, and saving in general, I consider her quite a treasure for Canada. Bishop's chaplain, however, says I ought to marry. Seriously. And of course, I should have no objection to that, if etc., etc., etc. But a man can't fall in love just when and where he's advised. At least I can't. My money affairs are still looking as well as could be reasonably hoped for. During the whole of the year 1850, I received 50 pounds, within a shilling or two. And during the present year, I have already received 40 pounds. I do not, however, expect to average nine pounds per month for the rest of the year, because the winter and spring is the time when the farmers are always expected to settle their bills. My debts still amount to 70 pounds and could hardly have been less. I did not think that the commencement of housekeeping would have cost near what it did. My practice is also still slowly yet steadily increasing, so I have reason to be thankful for success on my endeavors to make a living and to be glad that I came back to Canada. I take for granted that Henry gave up the plan of going to Oregon, or I should have heard again from you. I must say, I think it was an excellent chance for him if he had gone willingly. The McAndrews have a cousin who has left California for Oregon and speaks very well of the latter place. I suppose Charles, George, and Henry have seen the exhibition by this time. It must be very interesting. Several people from this neighborhood are on their way to England to see the exhibition and their friends. My friend, Dr. Carswell, says he's going in a week or so, and his brother or uncle will be in London with the King of Belgium, whose physician he is. His absence may not do me much good, although it will be sure to do him harm, for perhaps some more formidable opponents may come in his place. Still, I don't think any newcomer could cut me out entirely. Most people reckon my practice the best of the two now. I told you in my last letter, I think that the new government land agent has spoken to me to attend his wife in her confinement, but I did not attend her and was treated rather shabbily. When the time came, he wanted me to attend with Dr. Carswell, in fact. I was to play second fiddle, I found, and would no doubt have had a full share of the responsibility if anything went wrong. So I told him that he ought to have told me this before, in which case I should have refused to attend from the first. 
He said he had intended that I should have been alone after he had heard that Dr. Carswell was intemperate, but MacDougall, one of the great men and who had told him that although he had nothing to say against me in any way, he was surprised that people should prefer me in such a case to a man so much older and, of course, more experienced. I, therefore, went home after he made me promise not to go out of the way and that I would come if sent for, which he said he should do if Mrs. H. was in absolute need of two medical men. Since this, I have had two first-rate midwifery cases, one of them a friend of Mr. McDougall's, so I don't care much for losing Mrs. H., more especially as I have been since told that she said she would have preferred me if Mr. H. had given her her own way about it. I shall send you in this letter a prescription for Alfred and Donald and a plan of my garden. It's not much of a garden yet, but it is a great amusement to me. The McAndrews honored me with a call yesterday, and Jane McAndrew very insultingly asked where my garden was. She's a dear girl. I wish she was Catholic. My ground, three-quarters of an acre, is surrounded by 70 young maple and balsam or cypress trees, and I flatter myself it will be a very pretty place in a few years. I went about four miles the other evening to a farmer who had promised me some young cherry and plum trees, and I brought home two of each, besides some other plants and precious work I had with my pony. He's a spirited little chap, and whenever the trees moved, he thought I was going to strike him. I rode this same pony 55 miles in one day through very rough roads lately, and after the 50th mile, he raced with and beat a fresh horse, whose owner thought he was a very fast trotter. But Billy can beat anything I ever came near for speed and endurance. When I say speed, I mean trotting. That's his proper pace. May 28th. I received your letter May 7th last night with the Times and an illustrated London News, and thank you for the same. They're very entertaining, especially the latter. You seem to think that I have lost my nose, which is an erroneous idea, I am happy to say. The frozen part was raw and ulcerated for a week or two, but healed very satisfactorily, and there is now only a dark brown scar which will wear away in time, I expect. I am sorry you're disappointed again in selling clay. If it won't sell, would it not be better to give up all thoughts of it at once, rather than be kept in continual suspense and the agent's bill running up, I suppose? I wonder that Henry should think of going to New Zealand. If he'd gone to Oregon, it would have been as a gentleman and to follow a profession suited to his education and habits. But what should he do in that most distant and, by all I can learn, most unpromising colony, alone and without any profession, trade, or even knowledge enough of trade, to be a clerk or foreman at good wages. As to his working on a farm, it's perfectly absurd. He or I, or anyone not brought up to daily labor, unless naturally as strong as an ox, would be broken down both in spirit and body in less than a month. I speak candidly from what I have seen and in some measure felt. I earnestly recommend Henry to employ himself without delay to the study of some profession either in England, or still better, in whatever colony he goes to. His age may be an objection to this in England, but in Canada at any rate, it would make no difference if he were ten years older. If I had not got on with my profession in Canada, what could I have done? There are many speculations, it's true, which might answer, but a man just arrived in a new country without friends capable of advising him and without any expression of his own in such matters, would have little chance of succeeding in anything of that sort. Surely Henry might profit by my example. I mean, so as to avoid my follies and consequent troubles. 
He may believe me that farming with a capital of 300 pounds would be either ruination or downright slavery. I should, of course, like to see him out here and think it would be for his benefit, but I am an interested party in such a course, so he must not think much of that part of my advice. You say Henry does not like the idea of the climate of Canada. I think climate, so long as it is healthy and sunny, matters little if one's pocket is tolerably full. It would be better to be rich in, what shall I say, there can be no worse climate than that of England, so I'll say in England, begging pardon, than poor in Italy or Spain. For my part, I should prefer the climate of Canada to that of either Australia or New Zealand, certainly the latter. Henry is right, I must allow, in saying that the climate of Canada, at least this part of it, is not well suited for farming, because nothing can be done in the winter. Yet, there is no finer flower raised in any part of Canada or in any country in the world than Canadian flour. It was actually sold in New York last year at a higher price than any other. But as I said before, if he were only here for a week to see things for himself, he would be convinced that farming would not suit him. And farming in a new country where labor is scarce and dear must be pretty much the same everywhere. As to his working a farm with his own hands, let him only take a week at it in England and then remember that people work much harder and longer in a new country. If work is fatiguing with the thermometer at 60 or 70, let him fancy what it is in Canada or Australia. It's getting very late, so I must finish with love to all, especially Julia, and thanks to her for the London news. I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. December 12th, 1851, Renfrew, Canada West. My dear father and mother, your last letter came to hand November 5th, and my last to you was posted October 29th. I have been rather longer between letters than usual in hopes of hearing some news from you every week, but I will post this at all events before next mail day. I will enclose a letter for Henry too. I feel much obliged to you for your intended present of clothes by Henry, and in answer to your question as to what I should like, I cannot think of anything in the linen way unless a silk pocket handkerchief or two. The shirts you made me in 1849 seem still as good as new. Flannels, I have just got new, and my housekeeper knits better socks than can be bought in the shops either here or in England. I have also quite enough towels and tablecloths for the present. I wish you all a happy new year and hope the livings are fixed by this time. We have got a very early winter this time. Indeed, the whole year has been unusually cold. Snow has covered the ground for the last four weeks, and the ice on the Grand River is nine inches thick, I hear today, and of course strong enough to bear anything. The thermometer was seven degrees Fahrenheit below zero the day before yesterday. December 14th. I've got to Sunday at last, you see, my normal day for writing to you. Mrs. McAndrew says it's very wrong. She is a good old soul, but a thorough specimen of puritanical Presbyterianism. A Sunday or two ago, I was spending the evening with them, and our conversation had been for a while just on money-making and then on matrimony, and at last the old lady began to try to turn the conversation to the things of the world to come. She happened to mention the devil, so I remarked that I had thought I might as well be talking about such things as to be writing to my mother, perhaps, if I had stayed at home.
John McAndrew horrified her by remarking that our conversation had now just included the world, the flesh, and the devil. You would be much entertained with a Scotch minister's long evening prayer after, perhaps, he had been giving you a lecture on prelacy and Erastianism. He would probably pray that the mist of ignorance and prejudice might be speedily removed from the eyes of the blind and unconnected, etc., etc., etc. It's as good as a play. The day after I last wrote you, I was sent to Pembroke to see my worthy friend and nearly uncle-in-law, Mr. Lythe. I found him in a dreadful state with inflammation, or rather, suppuration of the right lung. He had been for four weeks under Dr. Judge's care, and ten days before I saw him, a Dr. Purvis of Portage du Four had been seeing him at Judge's request. Now, my professional brethren, whose preserves adjoin my own, and more especially my old and valued friend, Dr. Judge, have always behaved so uncourteously and unfairly to me on all occasions that I think it better to be at open war with them and neither ask nor give quarter than that they should in such cases use me as a scapegoat to bear all the responsibility if the case does badly and try to take to themselves all the credit if it does well. So I told Lythe that Judge might see him and give advice if he liked, but I would do just what I thought best myself and either take all the responsibility or none. More especially, as I considered that neither Judge nor Purvis had made a correct diagnosis of his complaint. In fact, Judge would have it that Lythe was dying of diseased liver from drinking and that the inflammation in his chest was nothing to the rest of his complaint whereas I could not see any symptom of diseased liver at all, and still think that if he had been bled and actively treated for inflammation of the lungs, etc., first caused by exposure to cold and wet, he would now have been alive. In fact, he would not have been laid up a week. As it was, I bled him and treated him in my own way, and during the six days I was with him, he improved so much that he could sleep well, eat tolerably, and gain strength so much that I and all who saw him expected him to recover. He himself and those who saw him allowed that his improvement under my treatment was a positive proof that I was right as to his complaint, for he had never improved a bit under the other two doctors. But within a day or two after I left, he got rapidly worse and died so any triumph was doubtful in the eyes of the public after all. His right lung was totally or nearly useless from such long-continued influenza. I expect he either got a relapse from want of care, or else the left lung became affected as well as the right. In that case, of course, he had nothing to breathe with and could not exist an hour. Indeed, if he had not been a most powerful man and the disease so completely confined to the right side as it was when I saw him and had been all along by his own account, he could never have lived as long as he did. He was, as far as we can judge, one of the most wicked wretches I ever met with. I did venture to give him a dose of advice now and then, and he seemed to think something of it, but I regret much that I did not endeavour to do more in that way. We doctors see death in his mildest and most dreadful forms, yet how little we prosper by it in general. 
Yesterday was the election day here for MPPs, and I voted for the first time in my life. You can't think how big I feel in consequence. My political opinions have been of a very miscellaneous description hitherto, I think you will allow, but I have endeavoured to find out exactly what they are lately, and after a careful examination, I find I've come to the conclusion that democratic principles of government are in the present state of it of Canada, the best suited to her, and so I gave my vote to the radical candidate." That is to say, one in favour of the late ministry, for we have many species of rads in this country, from those who advised Dr. Nelson and most of the leaders of the rebellion in 1838, but who are satisfied with the present system of government in Canada, of which party I am one, to the clear-gut reformers, as they are elegantly called, and annexationists. Politics in Canada never had a quieter aspect than they have now. The annexationists are an unruly handful, the country is flourishing, and all parties feel that Canada is getting strong enough to defy any attempt at tyranny within, by Great Britain or the United States. Popular feeling is decidedly in favour of everything English just now, because England just lets us alone. I am sure any interference in the shape of a Stamp Act or an ecclesiastical tithe bill, or a tyrannical governor would in a month or two turn the tide the other way. I myself used to have a great horror of annexation or anything of the kind, but really I am so disgusted with the bigotry and would-be intolerance of the British government as shown by late events that I would rather see Canada ruled by any government which would not interfere with the Catholic or any other church than the aforesaid government." but times will change for the better in old England. Yet I hope another statesman like Sir Robert Peel might arise and perhaps will send Lord John to Woburn and his penal laws to the devil. I have commenced learning French again and mean to stick to it until I can talk fluently. I take lessons from Mr. Wilson, our schoolmaster. I first thought of beginning because he owes me a pound or two. I am afraid he is too hard up for cash just now to pay me any other way. He understands French very well as to the grammar and all that, I think, but I am sure he pronounces some words wrong. He corrected me in my pronunciation the other day. The common words, un, for instance. I knew I pronounced it as you had taught me, so I asked the wife of the saddler here who has been educated at one of the Montreal convents, and she pronounced them exactly as you do. I have twice been obliged to write a letter in French, and have managed it very well by leaving out just a few words here and there for this Mrs. Menard to put in. She always found all that I had written quite correct, so I am in hopes I shall soon be able to talk to a French patient without an interpreter. I once attended a French woman in her confinement who neither understood English nor any of her attendants. Rather dark work, was it not? All I could comprehend was Solomon, her husband, in the next room, divided by a slight board partition. Solomon, pied-dieu pour votre pauvre femme! Very affecting, wasn't it? And it more so. I could not help thinking, considering her doctor could not ask any questions but had to guess at all he wanted to know. 
I will write again before long and will then tell you more of my money affairs, etc. Believe me, with best wishes for a happy new year, your affectionate son, Francis Codd. December 15th, 1851. Renfrew, Canada West. Dear Henry, I am, of course, much pleased with the idea of seeing you and George next spring. That is to say, if you don't change your minds between this time and then. For, to tell the truth, I don't feel quite sure of seeing you until I hear you have actually sailed. I think you cannot fail to make a living here and a little more in a year or two if you are prudent and preserving. Your capital, though small and insignificant in England, will be enough to start you in almost anything in the new settlements of Canada if you take care to understand what you are about before commencing. Most emigrants, having a little money, waste it from not knowing enough of the way of the country, and, after a year or two, they see how much more they might have done with the same means. You, however, will have the advantage of my experience and advice. Seriously speaking, it will be of great service to you if you choose to take it into consideration. At present, hang on to every sovereign like grim death, for remember that every one you bring to Montreal will be one pounds five shilling currency, and five pounds is quite an important sum in these diggings. You ask me to say what I think you had better bring with you. You cannot do wrong to bring a good supply of clothes of every kind, for although they are not much dearer here, still there is a difference in favor of home, especially in the making of shirts, etc. If you have not a watch, you will need one, I suppose, and can get one at about half the price in London that you will have to give here. Don't buy a new hat. Hardly anyone wears them up here, and it would be sure to get spoiled in traveling. It is far better to bring two or three modest-sized boxes than to bring one great chest, like Charles, for instance, which would take nearly a team of horses and a ship's crew to move it. Put long screws or pieces of tin at the corners of your boxes, and ask Charles to give you an idea of how a big ship will roll and buck in a heavy gale before you flatter yourself that you know how to secure your box in your cabin. Wind or steam, it's all the same, twas so with me, etc., 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 vile old songbook. Don't bother yourself about marine soap, Plantagenet guard razors, and all those cockney inventions. You'll get fresh water to wash with and not be plunging about your cabin in a gale all the time. You'll feel the benefit of having a few books with you at sea, and above all, let me caution you against being persuaded to play a single game of cards. Some passengers calculate on being able to pay their expenses by the fruits of play and betting. If you must try one, bet about the wind, and be sure to bet that it will blow from the west. Five times out of four, you will be right, in spite of all appearances. I never was fool enough to risk my money at cards, but Captain Peebles, in the portly, was of a very sanguine disposition, and I won several bottles of champagne by always prophesying a foul wind. Even the sailors began to think me somewhat weather-wise. Follow Parkerson's plan, a little modified, of trying to make everyone think you're on the verge of destitution. It's a good one, I'm sure. When you get to New York, profit by my dearly bought experiences and go to a first-rate hotel, Bathburns, for instance. If you see any with the name of that hotel on it, they will take you and your luggage generally without charge. It's only the Negroes in an American hotel who will take any gratuity. I don't think there is any use in your bringing anything but clothes, as I have observed before. As to the seeds you were to bring me, never mind them. I have collected plenty here, some forty different kinds. I wish, however, that you could manage to bring me a coffee pot.
Your affectionate brother, Francis. January 14th, 1852. My dear father and mother, since I last wrote, I have received two letters from you dated November 27th and December 18th. My last to you was posted December 17th. Next time you write, let me hear when Henry thinks of starting. And before he sails, let him write and tell me the very day he will arrive in Montreal, as near as he can calculate, for I hope to be able to meet him there. If he goes by New York or Boston, he need not be so late as if he were to sail for Quebec. The Quebec ships are late on account of the probability of the ice not being out of the St. Lawrence, but there is nothing of that kind at New York or Boston. In traveling from New York, he must remember to keep an eye on his luggage at every stopping place, or it's ten to one some exceedingly cute Yankee will walk off with more or less all of it. I was sorry to hear of James Hudson's folly and death. I had not heard before that he really was married to Elsie's daughter. I suppose Mr. Jackson's madness is of a religious caste. Strange that one never hears of the Roman Catholic religion leading even its most enthusiastic followers into insanity, is it not? The winter here is one of the coldest ever remembered. There's not much snow, not more than two feet on the level, and we have not had the thermometer at any time so very low as it was on two or three occasions last winter. But the cold has been steady and continued, the mercury not rising above 10 degrees Fahrenheit for a week or two together. Tell Henry, if you will take my advice, he will not fire balls out of his double-barreled gun. I spoilt mine entirely by that. I believe Pater warned me of it, too. I thank you for your attention to supply me with news about the lawyers and livings. I hope it's all fixed by this time. An income of £250 a year in Prince Edward's Island would have been a very nice thing had it not been for the conditions attached to it. I expect it's much the same kind of place as Canada West, only not so good for business, etc. I think Canada West must have advantages over those lower provinces because there is an annual emigration from them to this country, none from here to them. A magistrate in this country is, however, a very different animal from the same in England. He need not spend a dollar a year more for being a magistrate. Many of our magistrates are plain farmers who can just read and write decently, but their authority seems to be just as much respected as in England. One of the two magistrates in this village is an old pensioner sergeant who was quartered in Holt with the artillery in 1806. He was also some time in Norwich and has been a steady patient of mine since he found out that I came from Norfolk. The old fellow was talking to me a month or two back about a case which had come before him and in which I was a witness. He remarked that had the prisoners not broken into the house, it would merely have been a case of assaulting the battery etc., etc. It was a slip of the tongue, no doubt, for he is not an ignorant man by any means, but I had hard work to keep my countenance. I don't think the governor would like a situation as parson in this country under any circumstances. The people here have a notion that they have a right to make either priest or minister work as they like for his salary, or they'll stop it. And among the Protestant churches, they even consider that they have a right to find fault with the minister— if he practices what in their estimation is unsound doctrine. In Pakenham, for instance, two years ago, the Church of England clergyman had to leave the place because he refused to preach to a body of armed Orangemen on the 12th of July. He said, very properly, I think, that if they came to church as peaceable citizens, he would preach to them on the 12th or any other day, but not if they came in procession as Orangemen. 
Government, however, rewarded him with the chaplaincy of Kingston Penitentiary. It's worth 400 pounds a year, I believe. I suppose the pianoforte is sold with the rest of the furniture, which I am half sorry for. If you should come here, it would have been worthwhile bringing it, I think. I cannot see in what way you should be less comfortable in this country than in England, except as to servants. They are certainly a great plague here. My housekeeper knows her own place and keeps it pretty well, but I have been greatly annoyed lately by rumors afloat as to her conduct in the village. When I'm out, I believe the poor devil is belied and her failings before she came to be greatly exaggerated. But still, such talk is very disagreeable for me to hear, with the accompanying remark that I injure myself both in character and profession by keeping her. I can't easily help myself, however, by attempting a remedy. I might find myself out of the frying pan into the fire, perhaps. The new Presbyterian minister I was telling you of in my last letter is really a very good fellow. You'd like him, I'm sure. He's very quiet, gentlemanly man, about 40 or more years old, and has none of the evangelical humbug about him that most of the Scotch have. As Mr. Sparham remarked of Pater, you might be a long time in his company before you would know that he was a clergyman. I was going to an Indian camp about seven miles up the ice of the Bonachere the other day to buy venison, a quarter for two shillings and I took Mr. Thompson, the minister, with me, and he was quite delighted. He likes Canada very much, he says, and his wife and eight children are coming out over the spring. My money affair stood thus on the 1st of January, 1852. Amount of practice during the year of 1851, 130 pounds. Income received during 1851, 85 pounds. Still due to me, 92 pounds. My own debts are £77 without including any debt to George and Charles. My income is £35 more than in 1850, which is a great deal out of £85, is it not? Still, I had hoped to have been less in debt by this time. The £77 is owing only to two individuals, Plant and McIntyre. During the past year, I have got rid of all the little bills I contracted when commencing housekeeping, and I have paid Plant £10. But McIntyre's patience has been put to the test, I am afraid, for I owe him more than at this time last year. He has certainly been a good friend to me. Do you think if I had been in the same situation in England, I should have met with as much help in the shape of credit, etc., etc., as I have had in Canada? I love old England very much, but I should not like to try it, I must confess. You must remember that here, a storekeeper could sell almost any amount of goods, the only restriction to his business being the difficulty of getting paid in cash and of finding a market for produce taken in payment. Mr. McIntyre, in some measure, suffers loss or, at any rate, risk by supplying me with goods at a long credit, even with legal interest, because he could sell the same goods to someone who could pay him sooner. If ever I am able to save a few hundred pounds, I will enter into partnership with John McAndrew if he is willing, and without giving up my profession, which I'm really fond of now. I could double my capital in a very short period, I'm sure. That is to say, if times are then as they are now. It takes a man several years to open his eyes to what may be done with a little capital in Canada, and by that time an emigrant has generally fooled away all he brought, if he even had any. I sent you a paper with an account of a magnificent concert we had in Renfrew. The singing in chorus would really have surprised you. The pieces were very simple hymns, but some of them, I think, could hardly have been approved upon. 
This was by the Renfrew Amateur Local Music Club, mostly young ladies taught and led by Mr. A. Thompson, the blacksmith. The solos were executed, in the sense in which the word is used by J. Ketch, by the gentleman who officiated as mentioned in the paper and the Lanark Instrumental Band, consisting of three fiddles and two flutes. It was quite a caution to snakes, as the Yankees say. They played easy music, but played it very well indeed, so much so that the unprincipled ruffians who had been worshipping at the shrine of J. Barleycorn, see Lanark Observer, could not withstand the temptation of getting up a dance among themselves in one corner of the building, until the band stopped and a new song was commenced. The said ruffians expressed their disappropriation by hissing etc., and thereby exciting the indignation of the singers to such a pitch that they lost their voices. After mutual recrimination, the orchestra was stormed, and a regular fight was near commencing had it not been for a magistrate and the deputy sheriff of the county who happened to be present. The profits of this concert are to go towards forming a mechanics institute. If we can raise 25 pounds amongst ourselves, well, the township government is bound to give 50 pounds for a library. The people expect me to give a lecture, I'm told. I'll try, but I don't know whether they will have patience to hear it. I think, however, that I can give as good a one as any of my neighbors, so if it's bad, they can't laugh too much. I spent Christmas Day with Mr. McIntyre and his wife, and New Year's Day with the McAndrews. In the afternoon, a large party of us went out for a sleigh ride, and coming home, we met a sleigh full of people who were pretty merry and insisted on all taking a suck at a bottle of whiskey which they had with them, also a keg to replenish it. Exceedingly kind, was it not? They were equally polite to everyone they met on the road, I was told. If Henry learns bookkeeping, he might get employment from Mr. McIntyre as soon as he arrives here, I think, should he wish it. Mr. McIntyre was telling me the other day that if any brother were here now, he should be glad to get him to assist him with his books. I said that if he came early, he might perhaps be glad of the situation, but I suppose Henry would turn up his nose at that. If he had any intention of storekeeping, it would give him some insight into the method of doing business here. I cannot help hoping that you may come out next year yourselves, for although you appear to dread it exceedingly, I feel almost sure that you would feel more comfortable here in a few months than you are likely to be in England. Still, it is such a matter of individual taste that you must not let my opinion that you would like Canada have any weight with you. I can, of course, only tell what I like myself, and I assure you that if you were here, I would not return to live in England under any circumstances. The Canadian government is selling debentures bearing 8% interest. Could not some of your money be invested in these? They are as safe, I think, as the Bank of England and are easily turned into cash again. I see them advertised for sale very often. There are also advertisements inquiring for them. As to what you are going to do for me when you get your cash in hand, remember that in the first place I am not in absolute want of assistance at present, and you may want the money more than I do. If my professional income continues to increase, or even if it remains at £85 a year, I could easily afford to give you interest for any sum you might advance me, provided I were once clear of debts on this side of the water. I find as my practice increases so do my expenses to a certain extent. For instance, my expenses when going long journeys for meals, etc., for self and horse, and often bed too. Then I have had an expensive trip as a witness in a case of murder to Perth and shall have to go again next April. 
The law does not allow me or my other witnesses a copper in such cases, unless I were to sue for it in or form or a pauperous, which of course I can't do. Otherwise, I had hoped to have been further out of debt by this time. I am sorry to hear you say it is impossible to sell the living. If so, I suppose it is impossible for you to emigrate even if you wished it. How I wish we were all living together on a cleared farm on the banks of the St. Lawrence between Montreal and Quebec or Kingston. Every living to be had in London may be had here at, on the average, about the same price as in Norfolk. And the society, partly French and partly British, is quite as good as we would be likely to meet with in England. There's a Mr. Pinney, an Englishman living within 10 miles of Bytown. He was a rich man when he emigrated and now is probably living in 10 times the luxury and independence that he did in England. He was lately made a member of the Legislative Council, the Canadian House of Lords, and has the title of Honourable for Life. Had he stayed in England, he would have still been a nobody. Now he's the founder of perhaps of a noble Canadian family and owns the part of the Township of March. I hope you get the Montreal transcript regularly. I flatter myself it is interesting this time. Lovin, the Irish novelist, has been performing in Montreal, and the papers say he's going to travel on the Ottawa above Bytown to take sketches. I am in hopes he will sketch the upper Alumet Lake with my boat in it. She will be long spoken of as the first ever built up here. I must shut up, or I shall lose mail. So wishing you, my dear mother, many happy returns of your birthday, I remain your affectionate son, Francis Codd. And so ends our story of Francis Codd's life in Renfrew County. Whether it was the unpaid debts of his patients, his own debts to Mr. Plant or Mr. McIntyre, or, as we suspect, the chance for a return to live with more of the charms found in a larger metropolis, we know from history that Dr. Francis Codd eventually married and raised a family in Toronto. In fact, his great-grandchildren can still be found there today. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Lynn Stewart, and our producer, Barry Conway, we want to thank you for taking an interest in Renfrew County history. But just for old time's sake, put down that cell phone and iPad, pick up a pen and a sheaf of paper, and write a letter to someone you know in some far-off place like Norwich. Good day, and God bless. <laughs>